Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. On the 7th of February 2010, at the age of 39, I was a 70-mile-a-week fell runner, fairly obsessive, a mum to three young children, husband never around because he was always away, and no family. And uh, it's nine minutes past six on that day... This Ed Allard from Dore in South Yorkshire had a severe brainstem stroke and then went on to develop locked-in syndrome. Doctors said she'd never walk or talk again, but the mother of three defied their predictions. So, what was it like? Well, when I emerged out of the medically induced coma, frankly, it was like waking up inside your own coffin. Um, I don't know if you can imagine that, but where you can't move anything. You can think and feel and see, assuming your head is pointed in the right direction, but you can't move anything. There's no messages go from here to any part of my body, apart from being able to blink, which I learned how to do after about three weeks, still remaining locked in. So it was a pretty, pretty scary existence. Now, this next slide is a warning to you all. Now, I've played the following slide a few times and uh, I think it might need a health warning. So I'm just telling you. The next slide, I want to give you an idea what it's like when you're trapped inside your body. You can think and feel and see and hear everything. You aren't able and you're totally powerless to do anything. You can't eat and drink, so your day is not punctuated with a coffee from Costa or a meal. Um, all you have is that clock on the wall in front of you with all the, the life support, the SATs machines and everything going on. And seven days a week, uh, every minute of every day, this is what I used to think. It's me. It's me. It's me, please, I'm in here, I'm in here, I'm so scared. It's that machine breathing for me. What if they think I'm not worth keeping and turn it off? I've seen the films. Where are my kids? I need to see my kids. My legs are cramping so badly, please stop it. The hours are like days, the days are like weeks. I'm so scared and frightened, please help me, please, please. Now, I played that, not to upset anybody, but um, uh, as you can see from that picture, Try to lighten the mood. I did master the art of swearing with my eyes. I think you can perhaps pick that up. <laughs> and I could have done with the trip to the hairdressers. So I've had my roots done since. So, um, but um, it's pretty horrific, actually. You know, uh, very anxious moments, wondering whether you're going to die. It's horrible. Um, but I want to fast forward a little bit. Um, I went to rehab, fortunately, after nine weeks. And um, I was faced with a team of people who had only ever read books about locked-in syndrome. That was my formal diagnosis. Whereas I thought in the six weeks after I'd moved to rehab, I'd made some improvements. Not that any of those were visible to many of my re uh, rehab team. So when I went to my six-week review, very happy, I was actually written off in that review. Um, which was a big issue for me at the time. But I want, what I want to talk to you about is, in my mind, I had some very, very um, ambitious goals that I wanted to achieve, um, but no one else seemed to understand that. 
and, and I was facing a lot of um, negative messages about lowering my expectations, so much so, um, which I think is very destructive for people with illnesses, um, you know, we, we need to know a bit more about the individual, the patient, and what drove them and what drove them before they were ill. They're not just the patient, they're a human being before they were ill. And, and I couldn't get across, because I couldn't communicate, unless I blinked, what, I, what was important to me. And it was very telling that my friend told me this story that I want to play for you, that I spoke about in a, in a presentation a few years ago. The psychologist took my friend out of the room, unbeknown to me, and she said, we have a problem. Kate's expectations are here, and ours are here. You need to bring Kate down to us. And she said, no, damn you, you need to go up to her. And I think that's really important that, you know, we, uh, we don't lower expectations. We find out what they are, what the patient wants to achieve and we want to do. Um, now, <laughs> this won't come as a surprise. Being home with my kids, hugging them, cuddling them, telling them and consoling them and telling them it's going to be all right was an absolute priority for me. Being away from my kids literally physically hurt me. Um, it was painful. Uh, I, can't, I can't describe as a mum. My youngest was only five, Woody. And um, they were huge, huge drivers for me. Uh, I can't, that separation anxiety from them was enormous. But I also had a result of a magic may, I mentioned to you just earlier, I've not got time to go into. A series of events happened that made me go from I'd acquiesced and given up on life because I was totally depressed, they'd all given up on me, to, to a point where I thought, sod you all, sorry about the language, um, I'm going to prove you all wrong because you've written me off. And that happened in the month of May 2010. And that was my saviour, actually. Having always been someone who, if you said you can't do something, I'd say, just watch me. That's been my personality all my life, which stood me in good stead. But I had the most incredible goals, ambitious goals, for example. I wanted to eat and drink again. Seven months eat, not eating and drinking nearly killed me. I wanted to hug my kids. I wanted to be home for Christmas. I wanted to eat a proper dinner, even if it was uh, processed, rather than through my peg. Uh, I wanted to run again. Now, the nurses thought that was ridiculous. I wanted to walk out of hospital. Again, the nurses thought that was ridiculous. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. And every single day, I used to will my body, whether it was to swallow better, because I had a really big problem with my swallow as a result, or to move the range of my finger just a bit more every day, or to bring this left side back to life, which hadn't moved for five months. Um, I used to will my body by literally thinking and looking at a different part and move, damn you, bloody move, come on, move. And it was, I knew nothing about neuroplasticity, I knew nothing about intentional medicine, visualization, I just knew I was desperate. Um, so, it was bloody hard work. You know, when Jeremy Kyle was on, or Foxy Bingo, who used to sponsor um, Jeremy Kyle, I, I've got an advert on my brain, because I watched it every time in the hospital, I'd always be practicing my exercises, all day, every day. I mean, 400 times a day, I'm not, I'm not joking, that's how often I used to do it. 
But I think it's really important that every goal has to be broken down to bite-sized goals. You can't eat an elephant in one go. It's bite-sized chunks. And that's really important. I mean, you don't just get up out of bed and start walking. It takes weeks of months of, you know, putting different actions together. Um, but all that therapy and some other stuff I've not got time to go into, um, just actually a day less than a year to, for my anniversary, I, I kind of ran 10 yards but 21 months after my severe brainstem stroke, this is what happened. Uh, I ran, stroke, walk, stroke, ran, um, the Percy Pud race that three years earlier I'd come third in my age category again. And a very proud moment. So that's kind of my story so far. But what I wanted to share with you as a result of that is some of the things I wanted as a patient. I wanted in ICU where I was for nine months, an absolute shit scare um, of everything and everything. Um, I wanted my, my tracheotomy not to pop off because when it popped off, all right, my, my machine alarmed and the ICU nurse was only at the bottom of the bed. But when you can't breathe for yourself and you certainly can't tell anybody it's popped off, you become very irrational. And I wanted a simple system so that didn't pop off. I mean, Christopher Reeve talked about it all the time in his books about the pop-offs. Why has an extra layer of anxiety to what is already a very anxious situation? I don't know why they aren't designed not to come off. Now, I talked about the clock, the hours of boredom with nothing to punctuate the day. You know, it was just awful. I mean, I was, I was in a, 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 if I wasn't hallucinating, the nurses were trying to bump me off or pull the plug on my machine. I was, I was actually dreaming that I was being wheeled on a daily basis when I was going through my hallucination phase to a cafe in Guernsey to watch my ICU nurse drink a latte. And it's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, trippy. Um, so, you know, that, that was a huge issue, actually having stuff to do, not, not stuff to do, but, you know, things to engage my brain. And so I could stay awake during the day because if I slept during the day, which is very hard not to because of the drugs you're on, then at night, no way could you sleep. And being awake at night on an ICU ward is, frankly, horrific. Now, what else did I want? I wanted this machine here as a, a flip-flow. When I was trying to train my bladder to operate properly, having been catheterized for a long time, I had to spend minute, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour, two hours, whatever, uh, with my, my flow clip, clipped off. And then the, the nurses would release it. But often, I couldn't do it because I had no strength and I had no ability to move my hand. So I, meant I needed a nurse to come and do it. But quite often, the nurses were busy doing other things. So what would happen, the most undignified thing, you'd end up bypassing, which isn't very nice. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted a way to control that myself. Don't know how you do it. I'm not, a, I'm not an engineer. But that used to really upset me. Um, when I came home, um, I could only go upstairs once a day and down once a day with my husband. Um, and I was, frankly, I was doubly incontinent and 
And the continence issues was a huge area of concern for me. I couldn't go anywhere. I didn't know where the toilets were. And, now, and obviously I know there are apps now in terms of locating toilets. Um, handling my outerwear, my underwear. I mean, these are all difficulties that I wanted help with. But on top of those physical issues, I have to say, the mental side, the impact of my, on my family has been enormous. There was no help for me to pick up the pieces of parenting. I've had no psychological help uh, offered to me. I've been discharged and just abandoned after what I'd had, which was quite severe. Then friendships become isolated, become withdrawn. The mental sides of a severe physical illness are enormous. Uh, and I wanted help with that as well. <laughs> um, I mean, my kids were completely messed up. I mean, I just have to tell you, for the first two weeks, the three of them rotated who slept with me in my bed every night. They were so pleased to have me home. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's not funny. After two weeks, they were like, fine. It's all well and good mum being home, but she's nothing like she was. And they kind of, you know, it all went, it all went south at that point. The, the, um, the holiday period ended, and it was like, this isn't what we expected, kind of thing. For everybody, because they were messed up and I couldn't deal with them. Um, so it was, it was, it was, it's, it's been hard for everybody, really. I also have to say, I wanted really good Wi-Fi in hospital. I used to go onto a nurse's station computer. I think Wi-Fi is an, an area, you know, with hospital technologies that, you know, could be a, an added value. I don't know. But for me... Being on the Facebook, I had to go on the nurse's uh, account because I forgot my passwords, um, with my hands on a pillow, because I couldn't have the, the weight of my arm prevented me from going on the computer for a long time until they put cushions under it. So having something that supported your elbow is really important for people. Anyway, for me going on Facebook, it was an absolute amazing event. It broke the bubble of being in the rehab ward. I mean, I remember... Um, because my friend who lives in Dubai I went to university with, uh, the, one of the first people I inboxed was Cheryl. I said, hi, Cheryl. In my normal language, I'd been away a long time, but, you know, just sort of touch base. I've been a bit, I've been a bit um, busy recently. Apparently, she fell off a chair, so shocked. Um, but what social media did, and it's not, you know, it's, it's really, really important. It allowed me the anonymity so people would talk to me. I had the same personality, like my spelling went off as a result of everything. But people weren't put off from the grey hair, the slopey face, the not being able to move, which they would otherwise. I was just Kate, I was anonymous. So the anonymity was really important. But not only that, it gave me competition, allowed me to compete with myself. So for example, I would post regularly things like, right, I'm going to eat five spoons of Pity for Lou yogurt today. And then a load of people would be lovely and they'd say, oh, yeah, like, 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 yeah, go on then, go on then. And I'd see it as a challenge. And, of course, I wouldn't want to fail because that's not my personality at any cost. So I'd do it and then the next day it'd be like ten spoons or I'd sit on a plinth for three minutes and then tomorrow it'd be ten minutes, you know, or next week or whatever. So it allowed me to compete with myself. The only downside was the... Um, 
me and my husband, we hadn't figured out that actually when we had marital vows and I was in hospital over the kids or whatever or him selling my car or whatever, um, we didn't think to do it on an inbox, we did it on my wall. So it was like a soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, anyway, but these, I, I'm not joking, these posts here, because I have Facebook memories, these are posts, real time, what I wrote in hospital back in 2010. And I put them here to give you an idea of the sort of things that were going through my mind at what was the most critical stage of my illness. 26th of July, I've lost trust and control in my life. 5th of August 2010, manage the stairs with a stick. Next. And then on the, on the 6th of September, I've even I'm an impatient bugger, which I am, and I wanted them to do more for me. The therapists have always joked and said, you, they're rehab therapists, you pushed us far more than we ever pushed you. Um, I, at the bottom of the attempt, they finally come round to my way of thinking, because I wanted more, and they started to give me more. Um, 29th of August 2010, is false hope giving people, uh, is giving people false hope really just negativity? These are the things I'm going in my head when I'm really ill. Uh, I don't think failure has ever been an option. 21st, we never had any hope. These are the actual posts at the time. Um, so, what do patients say they want? Well, in the last five years I've been running my charity. I set it up three months after I came out of hospital. I was so passionate about, about my way could help others if they did it. You know, they weren't so negative about everything and given up. And a lot of people over the years have said to me, their pain management after stroke is a real issue. Uh, opening medicine packets, you know, um, managing to remember to take them if they've got cognitive issues. Um, pulling up their pants and taking them down with one hand. By the time you've put the contraption on to do that, you've wet yourself. So, you know, and I understand that, I kind of get that. Um, a lot of women have said, you know, they want front-fastening bras, you know, easy ones to do up or help with their medicine management. So these are all issues that I'm, I've been getting over the years. Similarly, they want their devices to be, and I know that there are devices that are waterproof panic alarms. I mean, falling over is horrible. It hurts, by the way. Um, and I know they exist, but people don't know they exist. There's an issue there. They want help carrying their shopping home. We don't shop like we used to. We shop more often and do less of it, but they want help with that. Or they want help with their personal bathing. Quite a lot of people have said they want um, cups for the wheelchair that don't look like toddler's cups as well. They want the age-appropriate, you know, drinking devices or things or cups that they can have on the wheelchair easily. Or AFOs that are waterproof they can wear in the shower. Now I know they exist, but patients have said they want them, so they obviously don't know they exist. Or for example, one, or a couple of people have said to me that they want just one switch to turn everything off in the house. You know, I'm just, I know they exist, the technology's out there, but people don't know. So, um, now, back in June, I had spent seven months working with a charity called Devices for Dignity in Sheffield, and they did a patient-led survey 
are to try and figure out what design ability seems to do really well in terms of what I've seen today, in terms of what people actually want, what are people's unmet needs. So they asked a whole series of questions. I've picked the three ones I'm most interested in. They asked what daily activities are a challenge, what's the hardest part about managing your own condition, what would be better about the what could be better about the technology you use. And these results may or may not surprise you. 52% found sleeping a major challenge. 46%, I'm not surprised with this, struggled with incontinence and incontinence products. Most people who have issues will not go and speak to anybody about it because, frankly, they've either had enough messing around or they find it completely undignified. So there's a taboo there. And 52%, and this really shocked me because I can't bear it, um, want to do the housework. <laughs> but anyway, clearly I don't. But, um, um, so, I mean, obviously we know that in, in terms of products, virtual rehabilitation, re um, virtual reality, rehabilitation exercises, feedback evaluation type devices are really popular now, and that's a big area of opportunity. As is where, um, wireless body networks, which you can wear on your body, have implants or have it on a PC. So these are things that are all growth areas and have been growing over the last few years. But I have to say, assistive tech isn't always high tech. For example, I was in ICU. My husband, I was blinking once for no, twice for yes at this point. And uh, I was spelling out on the letterboard, leg cramp, because on top of everything else, I had really severe leg cramps that I couldn't tell anybody about or release or relieve, just had to endure. So I was spelling out L, so I go from A to L, blink twice, and then B, go back to A, and I'd go all the way to E, blink twice, and G, and so on. And I'd look at him. <laughs> you like go leg, okay. A. And I'm like thinking, it's the end of the word, end of the word. So you go all the way back, and I think, all right, he'll, he'll figure this out when we start spelling it. So I go to C, I go L E G C, and he goes, okay, you've lost your marbles, there's no such word. Swear to God, if I could have punched him, I would have done. <laughs> anyway, the point is, all that needed on that le basic letterboard in ICU, they had the one in, in rehab, but in ICU they didn't, was a simple box that said, end of word. Um, so, I'm just trying to make the point, it's not, it's not always the bells and whistles, is it? It's just, you know, and you get those ideas from talking to patients who, who need the sort of assistive help. Now, what do I do now? I do a bit of speaking. I've written a really good book, if you want to get it on Amazon. <laughs> Isn't it, Ruth? <laughs> anyway, um, I'm trying to do a bit more speaking, if anybody wants me. Um, I also do consultancy. Um, I'm very much attached to this whole strap line that in life, anyway, there's never any promises, just possibilities. I see so many patients, like this gentleman here, uh, you know, he's been inspired by the work of it and his family have written, written his wishes that he will talk soon. And it's that 
positivity that I, I'd like to think is my legacy after five years, really, that I mean, even the Stroke Association have, have, have sent me a huge testimonial said, you know, the impact your work has had has been phenomenal in changing the way we view this, in, this condition. So I do feel very proud of that. But ultimately, my charity helped people globally. I visited people. We do research. We just got a quarter of a million pounds to do some electrical stimulation research to help stroke survivors on their upper limbs. That started with Nottingham University. Um, and uh, that all came about from a very cheeky, exploratory, experimental tweet uh, from me to an OT woman who read the book, actually, and I used that. I saw her bio and I thought I could use her. And she, within a week of me tweeting her, she was up in Sheffield writing a brief for a research bid. So I'm very proud of that, and that's going on now for the next three years of feasibility study. But ultimately, we're there to support families and patients to um, try and get the best outcomes they can after that. Because every stroke's different, every individual's different, but there are certain things you can do to maximise your outcomes. And that's all I try and do. And I have to say, just on that, this lady here, Christine Waddell, 17 and a half years, she spent in a wheelchair with a headrest. She Skyped me with her carer in the January 2012. I said to her and her carer, move your mouth. She moved it voluntarily, more than I ever had in hospital, albeit she's 17 years on, no comparison. But I said, would you like me to try and help you get some physio? And she indicated yes, she had no money. So I rang Neural Pathways in County Durham, and I said, right, they knew about me because at the time I'd been all over the media, and I said, listen, if I could give you a guinea pig, you'd have to give me your services for free. She'll work really hard for you, and in return, just say you make some progress for this woman who's done nothing for 17 years, not eaten, not moved, not come out of the headdress, then just think of the kudos to your, your company. Anyway, fair play to them, they said yes. Once a week, they sent somebody around. Within six months, she was on a plinth sitting on her own for a couple of minutes, not huge. But within another year, they'd ramped it up to twice a week. They were coming free. She was able to stand, like you can see in the picture. And after two years, this is the most incredible thing. After two years, in the November last year, she started eating for the first time in 18 and a half years. And... Uh, there's the proof. And no headrest. So I'm very proud of Christine. She works so hard. Now, in terms of the priority areas from the King's Trust, there's 10 here. I'm not going to go through them all. The self-management agenda and primary prevention and integrating mental and physical health are key priority areas. Um, and I think, you know, my, I'd like to think my story sort of very backs that up. But... <laughs> What do I think are the device opportunities uh, in the future to help people regain their independence? Well, clearly they've got to prevent, detect, manage long-term conditions. So, like, you know, how can we better manage diabetes, coronary heart, the stroke? Strokes happening more and more. A quarter of all strokes are people under the age of 60. The youngest person I've seen with locked-in syndrome was four. Had a brainstem stroke on holiday in Cornwall. Um, the, portable the devices need to be portable and versatile, which offer remote check-in for doctors with their patients 
so they don't have to have appointments. Because it's all about cost-cutting, isn't it? Um, we need to, you know, I would say that you need to prove that devices reduce admission and readmission rates into hospitals. That's quite crucial. Uh, and I think devices that connect physical and mental health needs. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness at the moment. Is there a way of integrating some of these physical devices with, with that? I don't know, but it um, seems an opportunity to me. Can you add value um, by developing engagement strategies uh, to improve patient experiences and demonstrate that? So, for example, devices that reduce GP visit times and improve medicine management. Um, I think this is really crucial, and I talked to Nigel about it today. We have to have devices that are affordable. There's so many people that would benefit from all this amazing technology that's already out there if they could afford it. I mean, 80% of new cars are paid for on contract hire. You know, this is the world we live in now. You know, very few people buy cars, so how would they buy a 3,000, 5,000 pound piece of kit as well? I think it's a big area that needs to be looked at. And finally, I, this is my little idea. I'll let you have it for free. I think we need to better promote existing devices with, get this, an Amazon-style retailing uh, organisation on the internet where you can search your unmet need, so I have an issue taking my trousers, my pants down, whatever, and you do your search, and that then throws up a whole load of suppliers and companies and products that would help you, you know, fix your unmet need. I think there's a massive opportunity in that. I think it's a really good idea. <laughs> That's just me. Thank you very much.